Dude, I loved watching Patrick Mahomes on the base this morning. The power stance that Owen had going on up there. That was awesome, man. It's like Jack Black, School of Rock. You're not hardcore unless you live hardcore, Owen. Hey, at the beginning of this series, a few weeks back, I shared with you a verse that I hope could be kind of a a guiding spirit for us during this time. It's from Philippians 2, 3, and it says, In humility, consider others better than yourself. And my constant prayer, uh, just in my own time with God here these last few weeks, um, time and again, it's just been God keep me humble. Keep me humble. I ask God to squash any part of me that wants to start to think, hey, I'm kind of getting this right and other people aren't. Because that's just arrogance. And if we're not careful, we can start condemning the condemners, which is a huge double standard. So join me in praying just individually for our hearts to be humble and for us as a church body to stay in kind of a teachable, um, gracious posture of people who are eager to learn and who desire to earnestly seek and know the heart of Christ so that we can live like him and love people well. And one of the comments that I've been... um, continuing to make lately is that I, I, I strongly believe that most Christians severely, grossly underestimate the scandalous nature of Christ. I think we have no idea how radical he really was. He was confounding to the religious leadership community, even to the just everyday Jew of his time. He just didn't make sense to a lot of people. The way that Christ interpreted the law through this lens of lavish love. The way that he stretched the boundaries of the social norms and constantly pushed the buttons on the way that people were going about their daily religious life. And seeing the way that Jesus kind of pushed on these sacred cows of the faith at that time kind of puts me in this humble place of thinking like, oh man, like if Jesus came back right now and came to Wellspring, what would he think of how we're reflecting his heart? I'm sure there'd be a few things that he might be pleased with. But if we're realistic and honest, there'd probably be some other things about how we operate individually and corporately that would grieve his heart. Places where we're just kind of missing it a little bit. Individually and corporately, I always want to come before God with the prayer of David in Psalm 139. I hope that you pray this on your own. We pray this for one another. Where David said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So that's all that intro there is just kind of my spirit. What I'm trying to keep before me as we go through this series, what I hope you're praying for yourself and for me and for us during this time. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 today. It's page 1472. 
Luke chapter 7. In verse 36, Luke 7, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus, is, Jesus gets this invitation from a Pharisee and he accepts Jesus' relationship with this group of religious elites that we kind of met a few weeks ago with Nicodemus has kind of slowly been deteriorating. Uh, in the beginning, there maybe was just some curiosity on the part of the Pharisees, like, who is this guy? Is he with us, against us? What's going on? But as the chapters of the Gospels kind of go on, we see this increasing skepticism, and then it even kind of turns towards anger and malice towards Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 6, just Right before this, we see this pivotal moment where on this Sabbath day, which is the Jews' holy day, um, where you kind of just stopped and you didn't do anything, and there were very, very minute rules about what they considered work. <laughs> and Jesus is doing these things and breaking all the rules, the man-made rules for Sabbath. And you have that scene, if you remember it, where Jesus has got this guy with the shriveled hand and the Pharisees and him are in this conversation, and, and uh, he ends up healing this man on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees in their hearts, in their rigid perspective, just can't take it. And you can see in verse 11 of chapter 6, if you want to look back, it says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began discuss with one, to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So now, just a little bit later in the story, chapter 7, he's invited to dinner and he's not, you know, too worried about associating himself with them any more than he was going to the party that Matthew threw with all of his sinners, sinner friends. Jesus is very comfortable in all kinds of settings because as we talked about, Justin talked about last week, he knows that, that people's stories aren't over yet, right? So he can, he can be there with folks because he knows there's hope for everyone. And over the course of 17 years of being a pastor in this town, I'm sure that I've probably confused some people from time to time um, with my associations. So there's all kinds of, over 17 years, there's been lots of different pastors, coffee and prayer groups that have kind of popped up for different seasons of time, lengths of time over the years. And I've been, maybe it's just because we're in Midtown, but I've been to pastors, coffee groups on the east side of town, mostly with pretty conservative um, group of pastors. I've been a part of coffee groups downtown with mostly mainline churches and much more liberal um, perspectives theologically um, in that circle. Um, and I'm not threatened by the fact that I don't agree theologically with everybody who I have coffee with, who I pray with, who I share life with. They probably don't agree with some of the things I think theologically either. So it goes both ways, right? But I just appreciate any pastor that's like giving their life to care for people in our city. And I, I always go in with an open heart of like, what might I learn um, in being in relationship with these different men and women in our town and rubbing shoulders with people that have different perspectives than I do. And I hope your social circle is a diverse one as well. Because the echo chambers 
of just being around people that just agree with your way of seeing the world all the time is a breeding ground for pride. So Jesus shows up at the Pharisee's house and it says that he reclines at the table. So this is literally, okay, so we're talking about tables that are just like yay high. And so like you put your elbow on the table and your feet are like laying out behind you. So everybody's at the dinner table, you know, like this. They said something I was reading this week about they thought it helped with digestion or something like that to be laying prostrate. So whatever, right? And this was most likely, I learned a lot of things this week. It's amazing what studying will do, right? Um, It was most likely that this was a courtyard setting, okay? Kind of an open air. So it'd be kind of like, um, you know, the pastor's house, the Pharisee's house is here, but then there's like this front porch area where people are reclining in an open air um, courtyard. And so that would also allow for people kind of outside the picket fence there to kind of come up within a few feet and kind of watch what's going on, kind of listen in on the conversation, This is how the woman we're about to meet would have gained access to Jesus because she certainly wasn't invited to the dinner. So let's look at verse 37. It says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them. You know, there is so much packed into these couple verses. I'm going to be breaking this up into really small parts this morning, okay? But I love the, the King James Version translation of those verses there because it says this. It says, and behold, a woman. And that word behold means like look closely. Like take notice check this out. Behold, a woman who lived a sinful life. So this uninvited, unnamed, notorious sinner, and we can read between the lines that she was probably a prostitute. Are y'all noticing a pattern here with Jesus the last few weeks, right? We looked at the woman at the well who had her issues, Last week, we looked at the adulterous woman story, and now this week, we're looking at the story that's titled, uh, A Sinful Woman. There's this theme early on in Jesus's ministry of valuing women in ways that no other Jewish rabbi would have done or was doing at the time. And in each story, Jesus is addressing a woman who's in a state of just debilitating and overwhelming shame. Every story is the same. And, and as I was th- thinking about that this week and, and writing, I was like, gosh, man, that's the heart of our Savior. That's our winsome Jesus. His deep compassion and kindness for hurting and broken people supersedes his concern about social constructs and mores. He longs for each one of his tenderly created children to know their worth, to know how valued and loved they are. And what gives her the courage 
to approach him? Well, she'd probably heard stories or maybe seen for herself the way Jesus had treated and interacted with women before. She knew that he moved towards the marginalized and she sensed that he was safe. And it caused me to stop and kind of think like, am I a safe person for broken people? Am I a safe person for broken people? What are people hearing about how Wellspring loves people? Is this a safe place that we're creating? She came uninvited, an intruder, unnamed, and she didn't say a word. Have you noticed that? The whole story, she never says anything. She came to a Pharisee's house knowing how they would look at her. It's like saying a hooker went to a police officer's house and just strolled on in. So let me ask you, what is she fully aware is going to happen when, when she arrives on the scene? She counted the cost before she came. I'm sorry, what did we say? That she'd be judged, yes. What else? Yeah. Honestly, she'd probably just be like, in this very public way, like, shoved out. And it'd be very apparent she was there mm-hmm. and that she wasn't supposed to be. Yeah. It would be very apparent that she was there and that she wasn't supposed to be. You, you see other scenes, I'm just popped in my head, like in scripture where marginalized people are trying to get to Jesus, kind of like the bleeding woman, you know, and it's kind of like she's having a hard time getting there because it's like you're an unimportant, you know, this is an important conversation here. Who do you think you are showing up at a place like this? It makes you wonder why it was worth the risk for her, knowing what she was getting herself into. And she came with this alabaster jar of perfume that women used to wear it on like a necklace. It's an expensive gift. It's a treasure to someone. She understood at some level the gift of forgiveness that she was receiving. And it's pretty reasonable to, to think that she had heard Jesus preached before even that she had accepted and received his grace and forgiveness and that she's coming more out of a response to what he's done in her life. Maybe she even met him at Matthew's house. We don't know for sure. But she'd heard that message. She'd received it. And for once in her life, she believed, she hoped that maybe her life could be redeemed. Maybe it didn't have to keep going like this. Maybe the story could end a different way for her. And so she comes. And this is such an unsettling and awkward scene, isn't it? (laughs) It would be like if I'm speaking right now and this known stripper in our town comes walking through the doors and comes down the aisle here while I'm speaking, takes my shoes off and starts kissing and crying on my feet while I'm trying to preach to you this morning. And I would stop, probably like Jesus did, and just kind of pay attention to whatever's going on here. And for you all, I mean, it'd be weird for me, it'd be really weird for all of you too, all right? 
And I'd be asking how she'd get through security back there. I know we have a security team. And these are ugly tears that she's crying, folks. This isn't just like a tear here and a tear there. Because it says that she wets his feet with her tears. So I don't know how often you cry to the point where like the tears are dripping off of your face and there's like a pool of liquid underneath you enough to then like clean somebody's feet with. But she's making a scene here. <laughs> this isn't just a little whimpering kind of a thing, you know. This is, right? And while this wildly socially inappropriate scene is transpiring, obviously this awkward silence just kind of falls over the crowd. This is stretching everybody. Let's look at verse 39. It says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. He said to himself. So this is just inner dialogue going on here. He doesn't say this out loud. He just thinks it. He's completely focused on this inappropriate scene. And the fact that if Jesus really is a rabbi and a prophet, then he would know who this woman is. And what he's saying is he would know that by her touching him, He's becoming unclean by Jewish law. That means he couldn't go to synagogue. He couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't execute his duties as a rabbi. He would have to go through this cleansing process. So rabbis wouldn't allow themselves to do that. So there's no way that he's a prophet. In Luke 7, 16, just a few verses before this, the crowd had just said about Jesus, a great prophet has appeared among us. But Simon the Pharisee, he's not buying it. He's like, nah, he can't be. And what stands out to me here is just the, the utter hardness of Simon's heart. He's focusing on this stuff over here, and he's missing this unbelievable picture of redemption being played out before him because he's so rigid about the rules. Alistair Begg described this Pharisee as a moralist who struggles with the emotion of a changed life. And I think what he means by that is that we might believe that, um, even non-Christians might believe that kind of like the Christian way of living is a good way to live. People might think, you know, it's just good to be kind or to be forgiving or to be gracious or generous, to be hopeful. But that limited perspective fails to recognize and acknowledge a debt owed and a grace received. It's just about good behavior. Someone thinks faith is just about cleaning up their act, while Jesus knows that our sin condition is going to cost him his life. And that kind of love, unmerited, Grace received at tremendous cost to our Savior. It ought to wreck us from time to time. I'm not a super emotional person, 
by nature. But man, there's Sundays when I'm standing up here singing and for whatever reason, something we're singing, what God's doing in my life, what I'm thinking about who he is and what he's done for me, I mean, I just start crying. (laughs) There are days when I go to read God's word and I'm reading the stories and I'm taking the time to stop and kind of think about what all was going on in this scene and what it must have felt like to experience Jesus and I just start crying. And weeping about what's going on. Or maybe you're watching a, a baptism and man, just the Holy Spirit's just stirring in you. You're just so grateful. I've told you guys a few weeks ago, I watched that Jesus Revolution movie and where they're baptizing just hundreds of people in the ocean. I mean, I'm just crying because I'm just like, oh my gosh. Man, Jesus changes people's lives. Those people go you know, when they're standing on the shore, whatever hope and shame and stuff is built up in their life, and then in a moment, Jesus takes it all and wipes it clean, (laughs) and we get to start fresh. I mean, if that doesn't do something in you, then I'm not sure you understand exactly what the cross and the resurrection are all about and what Jesus is offering you. Right? Or I hear somebody stand up and share their testimony or their story about how God has changed them and it just stirs me, man. I'm just like, yes, that's my story too. I'm so excited about what he's doing in people's lives. And I believe that if we truly connect with how desperate and dire our condition is apart from Christ and how far he's come to save us and how committed he is to shaping our hearts into the image of Christ, our emotions will be engaged in our faith in ways that we can't control sometimes and will be overcome by God's goodness. How long has it been since God's love wrecked you? Let's look at verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So this whole, this whole awkward scene is playing out in complete silence. And then Jesus breaks the silence by directing a comment to Simon. He's about ready to prove to him, hey, I'm more than a prophet. Can you imagine if Jesus was at your house having dinner, and in the middle of the meal he said, insert your name, Bob? I've got something I want to say to you. I'd be like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. He knows what I just thought. Crap, right? Psalm 14.1 says this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what I think that verse means is like, says in his heart and thinks he gets away with it. Guys, we're not that different from the Pharisee. 
What kinds of things do we say in our heart, say to ourselves each and every day, that we know are wrong? Floor is open. You don't have to maybe be specific, just generalities. As you go about your day, what do you say in your heart that you know is wrong? It's not, that's not Christ-like. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What do you guys think? Yeah, Leighton? That you're in control? Okay. That's a good, good example. Yeah. Any of you guys go to gas stations in this town? I mean, I am like one foot in the pit of hell when I walk into a gas station. (laughs) I kid you not, man. When I've got my one item and I walk up to the counter and I'm waiting behind somebody who's buying like 50 lottery tickets and three kinds of cigarettes and a flask of whatever, I'm just about ready to lose my mind. I don't even want to tell you what might go through my head in that situation, but it's not pretty, right? How often do we drive by the stoplights and the people around the corners with their signs saying, who knows what, the thoughts go through our heads. (laughs) Or we see somebody wearing a mask. It sets us off, some of us. What we think reveals a lot about our hearts and what we really believe, doesn't it? Okay, I'll move on. (laughs) This parable Jesus tells is all about perception. Because the reality is, is that we all owe Jesus the same debt. He uses his example to kind of prove a point, but the reality is is that we all owe Jesus the same debt, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. Not at different levels, just, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross kind of thing. And none of us can pay him back by our good behavior. The sum of our debt to God is astronomical. There's nothing that we can deal with on our own. And how much love we have for God and others is directly tied to how we perceive our debt to God and what's been forgiven. If we perceive that God only had to forgive us a little bit because we're pretty good people, then we'll love little. And we'll have very little tolerance for really messed up people. If we perceive that we've been forgiven much, then we will love much. 
because we'll understand that we're capable of any sin. And so who am I to judge or to not forgive anyone? And here's my favorite part of the story, and we'll finish the story here. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you see this woman? Or do you just see somebody who repulses you? Do we see the people whose sin infuriates us? Do we even care to take the time to get to know their story? Jesus is telling this Pharisee, you have something to learn from this woman that you despise. And this is so cool because for some reason, I've never noticed this when I've read this story in my Christian journey. Look at verse 45 again. Jesus said, from the time I entered. So what that means is that she was already there when Jesus came. I've always read that like she kind of showed up late to the party. <laughs> so what does it mean that she was there and saw the whole thing play out from the beginning? Well, it means this. <laughs> she watched this Pharisee publicly shame Jesus by not extending to him the, the hosp hospitable things that you would do for any guests when they came to your house in that culture. They wore sandals around, their feet were dirty. You always washed your guests' feet. You greeted them with a kiss on each cheek. You anointed their head with oil, just common customs of respect. And this harlot who had received this grace and forgiveness from Jesus that had transformed her heart, she was appalled by this disrespect. And so she intervenes to honor him, no matter the cost of humiliation that she knew she was going to get from these hard-hearted guests. She didn't have a basin of water. And so she uses her tears to wet his feet. She didn't have access to a towel. So she lets her hair down and begins to gently wipe away the dirt and the grime. 
not having access to his face because his face is up by the table. <laughs> she kisses his feet again and again and again. And her alabaster jar becomes her anointing oil for Christ. This uninvited, unnamed, new believer that you look down on is closer to my heart than you, Simon. Can you learn from her? Church, when our Jesus is dragged through the mud in our culture and disrespected, when his status is lowered to that of just a good moral teacher, one of many options to get to heaven, do we intervene? Do we honor him before men? Do we give him praise, the praise he deserves, no matter what that costs us because we are unashamedly his? My friends, Jesus is winsome to those who are most aware of their need for forgiveness. Do we have a recognition of how desperately lost we are without Christ? How far he came to save us? How committed he is to shaping us into the image of his son? I love this little quote from Pastor Bob Deffenbaum. It says, no one is more accessible to sinners than Christ. No one is more repulsive to the self-righteous than Christ. Jesus calls out our inner thoughts of better than and leads us to someone that we look down to, look down on. <laughs> and he says, you have something to learn from them if you're willing to see. Jesus is near today. He knows everything about us. He's not repulsed by our sin. He knew what he was getting into when he went to pay your debt on the cross. And he's inviting us to come to him today. Honor him with your tears, your gratitude. Pour out the treasure of your heart on him because he cares for you. Let the power and the truth of the gospel wreck you today so that you might be a ransom reflection of his mercy and grace to the world around you and so that you might love much. Guys, we're going to shape, shake up, <laughs> shape up maybe too, <laughs> communion today. We're going to do something completely different. Uh, the servers are going to be in the back of the sanctuary today. So we're going to start by dismissing people from the front. And you'll go down the center aisle to take communion. And you can walk back around the edge to come back to your seat. So we're just going to leave the front open today. And just give an opportunity for people to just come to the altar, pray, confess, 
whatever God leads you to do during that time. We just want to have space and an opportunity for people to connect with Christ this morning, to be at his feet, so to speak. And sometimes even that change of posture of going just from sitting or even standing to kneeling like unlocks something in us spiritually, emotionally that we need to connect with. What I'm asking you to do is doing something courageous and vulnerable like the woman in the story today. I'm asking you to get uncomfortable. So you can do with it what you want. <laughs> it's just an opportunity, all right? And we're going to play two songs, so you'll have plenty of time to be with Jesus or to be awkward, which is kind of the point as well. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story today. I just love the way Jesus operates. I love how winsome he is, how gracious and kind he is. I love the courage and the honor that this woman shows in taking care of Jesus' needs because she's so indebted to him for his kindness to her. God, if our hearts are cold or numb or we feel like we're just kind of going through the motions of our faith, God, I pray that you would stir us this morning, that you would wreck us. God, that we would connect emotionally with the story of what you've done in our life. God, this isn't just about cleaning up our lives so we can be good people while we're here on earth. This is an eternal story that you flipped on its heels, redemption that we could not have earned on our own, that you've graciously extended to us, unmerited, undeserved on our part. God, I pray that the weight of that, God, that the weight of that would do something in us. God, because when we walk around this earth and our jobs and, and our connections doing life just kind of cold and indifferent to this faith that we say we believe. It doesn't leave an imprint on the people around us. It doesn't make people curious about this Jesus that we say that we've committed our life to. God, wake us up. Stir us this morning. Remind us of your love for us, God, and how deep and wide and long and high it is.